Let's turn in the scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is now our 10th study in this letter. This letter is almost 2,000 years old. Peter, who was Jesus' lead disciple, wrote it in the mid-60s, so about 30 years after Jesus died for sin, rose again, and ascended into heaven. Just about 30 years after that, Peter wrote this letter. He wrote it to persecuted Christians who had been forced to relocate from their homes around Rome into the regions far away of modern Turkey. And Peter's burden for these suffering Christians was that their faith, their love, and their hope would grow, that they would be strengthened even though they were suffering. He was certain that even as they persevered through suffering, their faith would grow and their testimony, their influence for Jesus would become increasingly effective. This is why he's writing. Now today we're studying 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. Just five verses. These five verses come at the end of Peter's central portion of the letter in which he has been encouraging these suffering Christians to have an attitude of fearless submission. I'm going to submit to unjust suffering, and I'm not going to be afraid of the future. He says, be controlled with this attitude. The central section has said, submit to unjust suffering. Be fearless about the suffering that may still be ahead. And he describes about the suffering that you might be enduring at the hands of government or at the hands of an employer, at the hands of of a spouse. And he says, in such difficult circumstances, endure, submit to it, don't be afraid. And we are at the end of that portion. Now, the reason we're only studying five verses today is because many people consider this paragraph that we're looking at today to be one of the most difficult in the New Testament. I've studied it for 20 years and I still wrestle with some of the details. But even though there's difficulty in understanding some of the specific details, the main message is very clear. And I just state Peter's main point like this. After he suffered, Jesus triumphed. So after suffering, Christians will triumph. That's the main message, and that's clear. Now let's read the passage together. I'll keep that up for just a little bit as we read the passage. But we're going to read 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. Peter, in concluding this section on, on enduring, submitting to suffering without fear, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, or we might say during which experience, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is in the ark, there were a few, that is eight persons, who were brought safely through water, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, I want to read that passage actually one more time, and then I'm going to lead us in praying for God's help as we, as we unpack it. But if you haven't read this passage in a while, it would do you well to, to read it again and chew on it again and try to make, make connections that, that, Peter's, that Peter's leading in. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which, in that ark, a few, eight people were brought safely through water baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him let's pray father please help us understand this passage this passage that so many including myself find so challenging we know that this passage, even though Peter wrote it, is ultimately from you. You carried him along as he communicated every single detail so that it's exactly what you wanted said and it's exactly what we need. We approach this passage with that kind of faith. So Father, as we study, please magnify the greatness of Jesus. I pray that you would help us to honor him like never before. And I pray that this fresh sense of, of awe over Jesus' glory would give us strength to persevere in the hardships that we go through today or tomorrow. Change us, Lord, as we encounter Jesus. In his name, on his authority, I pray. Amen. Now, right out of the gate, I want to face head-on the, the difficulties of the passage, and I see three primary difficulties of the passage. All right? I take this approach because I want to work toward application, but I don't think we can accurately apply a passage until we accurately understand a passage. So here are the three challenges, okay? The first one is this. In verse 18, what does Peter mean when he writes that Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit? Hmm. The second is in verses 19 and 20. Peter writes that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they had previously disobeyed in the days of Noah. So to what prison did Jesus go? Who are these spirits? And what did Jesus proclaim to them? Third, in verse 21, Peter concludes, baptism now saves you. What can't he mean? And what must he mean? Now, those are the central difficulties of this passage. And before we can work out applications, I think we need to work through each one of these tough questions. And I'm going to try to do it as simply as I can. But hang with me, because we're going to work through some, some challenging territory, okay? First difficulty. In verse 18, what does Peter mean when he writes that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit? 
maybe we could even get more specific and say, what does he mean when he says Jesus was made alive in the spirit? Does he mean that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit so that spirit should have a capital S? That would be in keeping with like Romans 1. A couple of the translations take it that way and capitalize spirit. Or does Peter mean that even though Jesus' human body was put into a tomb, he never died in his human spirit? His human spirit lived on. Now, neither of those options is like false or heretical. They're both possible. But I think that Peter's referring to Jesus' human spirit because of what he goes on to say. So I'd summarize it like this. I think he means that even though Jesus died physically and was buried, God caused Jesus' human spirit to live. And again, there are good supporting arguments for both viewpoints, but my way of interpreting spirit as Jesus' human spirit continued to live even though his body was in the grave fits with the next verse, and it fits with how Peter doesn't bring up the resurrection and ascension till the end of the passage. So that's how I'd answer the first difficulty. It's referring to Jesus' spirit, which lived even while his body was in the grave. Second question. Second difficulty. When Peter says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they had previously disobeyed in the days of Noah, what's the prison he went to? And who are the spirits, and what did he say? Now, this is where we, we, we get into more complexity, okay? I'm going to give you the bottom line explanation, and then I'm going to explain the, uh, the, the rationale. The simplest way to read the passage is like this. During the time in which Jesus' body was buried, he, like all humans who've died, went to the realm of the dead. The technical term for this in the Old Testament would be Sheol, or the grave, or in the New Testament, Hades, the realm of the dead, the place where dead spirits live. And while he was there, he declared his victory over death. He especially, while there, declared his triumph to the demons, who in Noah's day tried to ruin humanity, and since that time had been imprisoned. That's how I understand Peter's words. I think it's the simplest understanding of Peter's words. Now I need to explain. Peter seems to be referring to history that is recorded in the book of 1st Enoch. I've got a copy of it here. This book was written down, as best of scholars can tell, about two or three hundred years before Jesus. Peter refers to it here. He refers to it again in 2nd Peter. Jude, as Jim taught us a few weeks back on a Wednesday night, Jude is Jesus' half-brother. Jude referred to the book of Enoch. He actually quotes from chapter 1 of the book of Enoch. I had read First Enoch online a few years back, uh, but Jim let me borrow his printed copy, and I read it again in the last few weeks. First Enoch is about 100 pages. It's weird at a couple points, but it's not heretical. And if you read through the book and you step back from it and you say, what's the general framework, what's the general viewpoint of First Enoch that Jesus and his disciples would have been familiar with? I'd put it like this. There's one creator God. He's chosen a, quote, son of man to judge the earth and rule it forever. 
There are good and bad angels, and there's a coming day of judgment for all sinners. All people are sinners, and the only way to be right with God is to repent. If you step back from the book, all 100-plus chapters, and you say, what's the general framework? It's, it's a framework that's generally consistent with the Old and New Testaments. But it's not necessary, I want to say this to you, it's not necessary for you to read First Enoch. It's not necessary for you to believe that everything is true in First Enoch. Some of it is not particularly riveting to read. There are interesting portions on ancient astronomy and things like this. But if you're curious about it, feel free to read it. It was a book that Jesus and his disciples were familiar with. Now, one of the dominant reflections in First Enoch, especially if you're reading the first like 20 chapters or so of this ancient book, one of the dominant themes is a fuller description of what happened in Genesis 6. Genesis 6 is where we're told the rationale for the flood, essentially, and that begins with saying the angels went and had sexual relations with women in order to try to ruin humanity. And, and Enoch actually gives a fuller description of this multiple times in his, in his book. Actually, in chapter 21, I have a, a brief quotation of this, chapter 21 of the book of Enoch, verses 8 to 10. An angel is actually at one point going to show Enoch the prison where these angels who had committed this heinous crime were incarcerated, and Enoch shrieks. He says, how fearful is the place, how terrible is it to look upon. And the angel explains, this place is the prison of the angels, referring to the angels who had transgressed in Noah's day, and here they will be imprisoned forever. The simplest way of reading Peter is to say he's referring to what he refers to again in 2 Peter as this heinous monumental sin that the demon, the, the 200 demons or so tried to lead in, in revolt against God and his plan to redeem and restore humanity. The passage we're studying today is where Peter is teaching that when Jesus' body was dead, these are the days before Resurrection Sunday morning, Jesus went to that prison and proclaimed to those spirits his triumph. I think he said something like this, and again, a couple weeks ago, Jim suggested something like this. I think he's, he's on track. Jesus said something like, you all thought you could win, but you were fools. I'm king over all creation. I have the keys to your prison in my hands. I'm going to empty this realm of the dead. Of every person who's ever trusted in me, they're going to be raised, but you guys are utterly condemned for your foolishness that you thought you could rebel against the king and win. Jesus proclaimed triumph. Not only to them, I think Jesus was proclaiming this triumph in that realm, and Peter suggests that it was heard by all those who had died in the flood, all but eight, all those who had died in the flood. Now, to be clear, and this is where we have to be careful about what we're saying and what we're not saying, Peter is not suggesting here, as has been typical throughout some branches of Christianity, that Jesus suffered in hell. It's not saying that after Jesus shouted, it is finished, 
that he still had suffering to do. No. Peter's not saying that there was more suffering. Peter is saying that Jesus proclaimed his triumphant victory to imprison spirits in the realm of the dead. And we're going to come back to this in application. The third question, third difficulty, is in verse 21. Peter concludes, baptism now saves you. Now what can't he mean, and what must he mean? Well, if you go back and you look at chapter 1, like verses 5 and 9, Peter understands very clearly that salvation comes by faith. So he can't mean here that we are forever saved from being guilty simply by being immersed in water. Peter doesn't believe that that physical water can wash us from our guilt and our shame. Further, we know from exactly what he writes in the very next phrase that he's not describing something physical. He says, I'm not referring to a physical immersion in water that would like get rid of filth on your body. He says, I'm talking about the immersion of your conscience. But we have to understand that the baptism Peter's referring to here and being baptized in water like several have been in the past few weeks here, that there is a deep connection, a deep interconnectedness between the baptism he's describing and the water baptism that publicly declares, I'm a new person in Christ. So I think the way I'd say it is, Peter is here referring to the spiritual reality that physical baptism pictures the actual cleansing of my heart from all its guilt and shame by the Holy Spirit soaking me into the work of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit soaks you into the work of Christ, that's the baptism Peter's referring to here, and it's what baptism in water pictures, powerfully and publicly pictures, has happened to you. Being soaked in the work of Jesus is truly what saves you, all right? Now, you might be a little bit frustrated at this point, okay? You just need to know, the explanations are over. You've gotten Joe's take on 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22, and it is totally fine if you want to discuss these interpretations, if you want to discuss Augustine's interpretation that this wasn't Jesus speaking to the spirits, but it was Jesus speaking to Noah, through Noah to human spirits. That's been a common translation for over a thousand years. You can talk about all those things, okay? That's as far as I'm going to go in explaining things. Some of you might be sitting here saying, why in the world does the Bible have to be so difficult? Why did God have to make it so hard for us to understand? And I just want to say, that is an understandable question. I have thought it many times, and, uh, and it deserves a respectful answer. So let me reply in a few ways, all right? First, I'd say we need to recognize that difficult passages are rare. Thankfully, they are rare. Not every passage is this difficult. Very few passages are this difficult. In fact, I know of no other passage in the New Testament that's this difficult, okay? Difficult passages are rare. Secondly, difficult passages stretch us. 
just like some of your hardest teachers in school were the most impactful, some of the most difficult passages in the Bible can be the most rewarding. They can be the ones that after you've worked and worked and worked to understand them, they stick with you the longest. Third, difficult passages should be interpreted within the guardrails, as if we're driving down a road, have some guardrails on the road. Those guardrails are the simpler passages. It's always best to use clearer passages as guardrails for the harder passages. So, for example, when it comes to that phrase, baptism now saves us, I didn't refer to this when I was explaining because I wanted to explain it in the context of Peter's paragraph. But when you step back from it, there are some simpler passages in the New Testament, like, did baptism save the thief on the cross? Put that up as a guardrail when you're interpreting that passage. Or when Peter says, I'm sorry, Paul says, when he says in 1 Corinthians 1, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel because the gospel has the life-changing power. Put that up as a guardrail and say, he can't be saying that physically baptizing converts in water is actually what saves them. We've got some guardrails up, right? Use the simpler passages as guardrails for the more difficult passages. And then last, difficult passages have a dominant message that is clear. I could talk about this like from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is very challenging. Some people avoid it altogether. I don't think you should ever avoid it because the the book of Revelation promises blessing to those who study it. But when it comes to identifying what does the 666 refer to? I have guesses. I think you can identify about 30 guesses throughout church history. Not sure. But, but you can live your whole Christian life and never figure out what the 666 refers to and still get the major idea of revelation that King Jesus is alive, he's ascended, he's returning, and he's going to finish the work of redeeming not only his people but all of creation from sin and death. Get the big picture. You might not get the details, but you can get the big picture. And in this passage... It's very similar. You can get, if you just skip the middle verses that are pretty challenging, and you just read the first verse and the last verse, if you completely skip the middle details, you can know that Jesus suffered and triumphed. That's the major idea. Jesus suffered, and after suffering, he triumphed. And Peter is using this as a pattern to say, You may be suffering right now, but if you're following Christ, after suffering, there is triumph. All right, we worked through the challenges. We've worked through even just asking this question, why is there so much difficulty? The last section of the message today focuses on application, and I think there are three ways this truth should change our lives, three ways that this truth should change our lives. The first is this. You must understand why Jesus died. You must understand that he died for you in order to reconcile you with God. What Peter writes in verse 18, the first statement of today's passage, is one of the simplest descriptions of why Jesus died. He says, The Messiah suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
in order that he might bring us to God. That is a wonderful sentence. This statement is written by an eyewitness. Peter, the eyewitness, was convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. That is, he's God's chosen king to rule forever on earth. Peter was convinced that Jesus the Messiah was sinless. He was the righteous one. He never sinned. He was convinced that all other humans, including Peter himself, are unrighteous. That is, we fail to live our lives consistently under God's authority, and our rebellion puts us at odds with God. It puts us at a distance from God. Peter's view is that Jesus is the righteous one. All other humans are unrighteous. Peter is convinced that Jesus, when he died, died for the unrighteous. That word for is wonderful. It's grace. He died for us in our place, bearing the punishment we deserved. And Peter was convinced that if you follow Jesus and you rely on his death, you rely on his blood, what, what he did there at the cross, Jesus can bring you to God. He can reconcile you to God. That is a wonderful statement right there. Made by a firsthand listener of Jesus' teachings and explanations. By a firsthand witness of Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. This is the statement of an eyewitness. And within a few years of writing this statement, Peter would personally die for believing and spreading this message. I just want you to step back and say, have I committed my life to Jesus? If you have never committed your life to Jesus, if you've never admitted that you are unrighteous and you have punishment that's well-deserved coming to you from God, but, but you've acknowledged that God has made a way for that punishment to be absorbed by another, to be taken and exhausted by another. If you've never admitted this, I urge you to do so now. You can be reconciled to your creator by Jesus, by trusting his, his death for you. Will you do this? And I say, if you have taken refuge in Jesus, if you have trusted his death as your only hope of being brought near to God and reconciled to God, then I say, freshly treasure this reality this morning. If you are a Christian, you are not distant from God. Jesus, the blood of Jesus has brought you near to God. God is no longer against you. God is for you. And you are eternally protected and secure in that relationship. So after your suffering, there will be triumph. Let this verse, this precious verse, comfort you. Second point. If you follow Jesus, you need not fear suffering, including death. Because Jesus triumphed over suffering and death. 
If you follow Jesus, you need not fear suffering, including death, because Jesus triumphed over it all. I think the major application here for believers comes from the details of verses 19 and 20. You say, Jesus went to the realm of the dead. He proclaimed triumph there. What does that have to do with my life? It means you don't need to fear any suffering. You don't need to fear death. You don't even need to fear what's sometimes called the disembodied state. What is, like, what is going to be my existence between the, the, the burial of my body and the resurrection of my body when the trumpet of God blares and the archangel says, It's time! Charge! The bodies of dead saints are going to be raised. What's going to happen to you between now and then? You do not need to fear. You don't need to fear the grave. A few years ago, a pastor and scholar named Matthew Emerson published a really helpful book called He Descended to the Dead. He explains what scripture teaches about what happened to Jesus during the days in which his body was buried. And he especially, the last half of the book focuses on application. He especially focuses on passages like Psalm 16, on Romans 10, Ephesians 4, Matthew 12, Revelation 1, passages like this where Jesus says, I have gone to the grave and I have conquered. And he summarizes also what the church has confessed throughout history, clarifying that when, like the Apostles' Creed says, he descended to hell, it doesn't mean that he suffered in hell, but that he experienced what it's like to be alive in his spirit in the realm of the dead. I love the way that Emerson ends chapter 2 of that book, He Descended to the Dead. He summarizes what the Bible teaches about Jesus' descent to the realm of the dead like this. Christ, in his descent, proclaimed this victory over death, achieved through his death, descent, and impending resurrection to all the dead, righteous and unrighteous, and to disobedient angels. Christ's descent, in other words, is primarily part of his exaltation, not his humiliation. This was the first stage of his exaltation when he went to the realm of the dead, while his body was in the tomb. He went to the realm of the dead and pronounced triumph, victory. This is the first stage of his exaltation. I think he's spot on. What does this mean for you? means, Christian, you don't need to fear death. You don't need to fear the time between your burial and your resurrection at the rapture. Jesus went to that realm and he declared triumph. Triumph. That's why he said to John in Revelation, fear not, I am the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys to the realm of those spirits who've died yet presently live. Fear not. You should come out of reading 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, a very complicated passage, and you should say, I do not need to fear anything that's ahead. 
third and final application. If you have been soaked in Jesus, baptized in the sense that Peter refers to it, if you've been soaked in Jesus, then you need to think of yourself like Noah and his family in the ark. You're going to come safely through every storm. If you've been soaked in Jesus, you need to think of yourself like Noah in the ark. You're going to come safely through every storm. If the Holy Spirit has soaked you into the work of Jesus, if he has applied Jesus' cleansing blood to your account, if he has applied Jesus' resurrection to you, so that your guilty conscience is cleansed and you are now free to live a new kind of life of submission to Jesus. If the Holy Spirit has soaked you in Jesus like that, Peter says, you're in the ark. He says, the ark and baptism, that getting soaked into Jesus, they're corresponding. It's like you're in the ark. So even as the floods rise while the rain falls and sufferings rage around you you will one day step safely off the ark and into the kingdom of Jesus you will one day experience the joy and peace of sunlight even though right now you're tucked away on the ark Christian let this passage, this realization, so affect you that you get good sleep tonight. You're on the ark. You're going to come safely through. Let this calm your mind. You can have peace. The storms are raging, but you're in Christ. You're on the ark. Whatever you do, don't get off the ark. Don't stop following Jesus. No matter how hard you're suffering right now, in just a few years when you're personally with Jesus, you're going to look back and you're going to boast triumphantly. You're going to say, I looked weak. I was weak. I was suffering. I was in pain. Life was hard. But because of Jesus, I've triumphed. After suffering, there will be triumph. After suffering, Jesus triumphed. It's the main point of this passage. After your suffering, because of Jesus, you're going to triumph. I want to conclude by just reading through the passage again. This time, entering into it, my paraphrase, my explanation of what's going on. I'm going to read verse by verse. When I get to the verse number, I'm going to call it out so you can track with me where I'm at. But I'd encourage you to have an open Bible in front of you and now read the passage, look at it word by word, and I'm going to try to explain it. Peter's basically saying, Christians who are suffering for doing right, consider the Messiah who suffered once for sins in order to reconcile us sinners to the God whose just wrath was against us. Think about it. Jesus was the righteous one suffering for the unrighteous ones. 
That was unjust suffering. He didn't deserve it. He was doing it in our place. And Jesus, when he physically died, went on living in his spirit. Verse 19. And while his body was buried, in his spirit he went and proclaimed victory to all those sinners who were condemned in the prison of hell. They were there because of their past disobedience. Think especially of those demons. This is verse 20. Think especially of those demons that before the flood were consigned to that deepest prison in hell. And think of those humans, all those humans who listened and probably listened to Noah and probably mocked him as he spent 120 years building the ark. And yet they rejected Noah's patient God. In that huge ark that Noah built, only eight people were safely brought through the floodwaters. Everyone else died. Verse 21. See? Being immersed into Jesus, which is just like getting on that ark, that's what saves you. I'm not talking about your body being soaked in water so it gets a little cleaner. No, I'm talking about how you appealed to God, how you committed your life to him and begged him for a clean conscience. And God justified you through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So verse 22, Jesus, who died and rose again, ascended into heaven, and he now sits a sovereign king on the very throne of God with everything else being under his authority, including every angel and demon. You see, Christian, Unjust suffering is just temporary. And everyone who follows Jesus will eventually triumph. Let's pray.